Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, everyone, to the On Poly Podcast. I'm Steve Pakin. And I'm John Michael McGrath. Today, on the final episode of this pod for 2022, the Tories welcome new NDP leader Marit Stiles with a classless press release as the LG warns MPPs about the state of our democracy. We'll take another look at our special series called Recession Road. Our affordability reporter, Kat Eschner, joins us with a view from Sudbury. But first, Marit Stiles joins the pod to chat more about where she sees the party going and why she thinks she ran unopposed. It's Tuesday, December 13th, 2022. So let's get to it. When I was 17, you were not yet even born. And I'm singing this today because why, John Michael? Uh, We were speaking about this offline, uh, Mr. Sinatra's birthday today. Correct. Mr. Sinatra, were he alive today, would be 107. And he's the greatest singer of all time. And so, um, you know, why not acknowledge that for everybody to hear? In my household, you'd get a vote for Taylor Swift, but I will acknowledge that Mr. Sinatra is also important in the history of music. I'm not even going to let on that I heard that at all. Moving right along. My good, Taylor Swift is perfectly fine, but she's not the goat, okay? She's just not the greatest of all time. Let's move on here and say that listeners know that we've been taking questions and discussion prompts from our audience lately about things we're saying here on the podcast, uh, in our newsletter, maybe even in our columns, JMM. Um, A reminder, you can do that by emailing us at onpolitics at tvo.org. And what have we got queued up for this week? Uh, We have a question from John Fallis from Millbrook, Ontario this week. He writes, regarding your discussion on the road to recession, the Bank of Canada was trying to achieve an inflation rate of 2% while housing prices increased more quickly than that. Were those increases included in the calculation of the inflation rate or were they intentionally left out as part of the policy? Mm, Okay, here's what we're going to do. We are going to call an audible here because we were going to have Kat Eschner in our affordability reporter, later in the podcast to discuss Recession Road. But since we have a good financial question here, shall we... Oh, Kat! Oh, my God, you're wearing a Frank Sinatra sweatshirt. It's Frank's birthday. I think I might have mentioned that once or twice already. So, good question. I just wanted to answer this question by explaining a little bit about how an inflation rate is calculated. So basically the CPI, the Consumer Price Index, is based on a fictional basket of goods and services that Canadians access. Obviously we all have slightly different items in our baskets, but this basket is like the average Canadian who has um, one-tenth of a car and these days like one-nineteenth of a house. is, is who is sort of represented in these baskets. That's my sort of very cynical millennial, like, we own nothing take. So the Consumer Price Index, it captures everything, including, to the listener question, uh, housing prices. So it, it belongs under a category called shelter, which folds in both rent and housing. It does capture all those things, but it's not a straightforward, like, one-for-one with the rate at which everything is, uh, is, inf- is, is going up in price. It's uh, a way... A, a magical method that um, StatCan has of combining everything and of synthesizing this sort of number. Um, and when they release the Consumer Price Index every month, 
there is also a breakdown of various categories and how much the trip rate of change has happened in different categories. So we do see that like different categories can go up very dramatically. So while you can see like quite significant jumps in one category or another category, uh, generally the overall inflation rate rises more slowly simply because different commodities are doing very different things. I mean, one of the things that is captured here is like most people are not renters, right? Most people nationally, on average, are homeowners. And so the cost of their shelter doesn't actually change much month to month, right? It, it changes when their mortgages get refinanced or whatever. But uh, so so the, the largest single chunk of the population is actually has relatively stable shelter costs. And even renters, uh, at least, for example, in Ontario, their rents can only be increased on a certain you know, uh, legislated time work, a time frame, assuming that they are not, you know, uh, assuming that they have landlords who are mostly obeying the spirit of Ontario's tenancy laws. Um, and so I think that part of get, gets to part of why the CPI, it does include shelter as part of the index, but it gets reflected in, a, in an odd way because economists are trying to let the numbers tell the truth, but the truth is messy. I think the other thing that's worth thinking about here is, so the Bank of Canada is making its uh, interest rate raise decisions based on the rate of inflation currently and some forecasting that it's doing, but it doesn't have a real picture yet, like a a real data-driven what is actually happening picture yet of what is going to happen with the housing market because of the interest rate increases it's already done, which is one of the reasons why periodically uh, when these interest rate increases have happened this year, there's been some criticism because it's like it takes a while for those rate increases to sort of show up in the economy, particularly if you're talking about people who are renegotiating mortgages on a multi-year timeline or people who, you know, are only moving from one rental to another every couple of years uh, or or considerations like that. Okay, don't go far because we're going to bring you back to talk about Recession Road later. But in the meantime, we thank John from Millbrook for his observation and we and, and question. And we thank you for coming in and noticing that I'm wearing a Frank Sinatra sweatshirt today. Thanks, Steve. Aren't you observant? <laughs> Thanks, Kat. Talk to you later. You pay me the very medium-sized dollars. <laughs> <laughs> Don't fire me. <laughs> uh, yes, uh, thank you, John from Millbrook. Uh, again, if you would like to ask about any content on the show, uh, including Steve's sweatshirts, uh, please email us at onpoliticsattvo.org. And now, on to issue one. A new Ontario NDP leader has emerged. Marit Stiles, MPP for Davenport, a riding in downtown Toronto. Here's just a quick bio on her even quicker rise in politics. In 2014, she got elected as a Toronto school board trustee. Four years later, she moved into provincial politics, winning a seat at Queen's Park. And now four years after that, she has become the uncontested leader of the NDP. Uh, One telling anecdote I will uh, say, during the term of of Kathleen Wynne in government, Marit Stiles was a, a Toronto school board trustee. And Toronto school board trustees traditionally have complaints about the provincial government, more or less whoever's in power. And so at one point, uh, Stiles was complaining about uh, the liberal agreements for funding various school boards and uh, how Toronto was seen to be disadvantaged. I can't even remember the specifics. But what I do remember, the liberal government spokesperson responded very hard uh, against uh, a quote that she gave uh, for a story I wrote. And, and I, it surprised me because 
the government doesn't always take a big swing at certain things, and they swung really hard at Marit Stiles in that particular example. And I remember thinking, ah, they can see her being more important in the future, and they want to hit her now. Interesting interpretation. Turned out to be quite accurate. Well, earlier today, my pal JMM spoke with Marit Stiles, and let's play that conversation now. Marit Stiles, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. It's great to be here. So let me uh, go right into maybe the... um, odder or more unique uh, distinction of uh, this recent contest. Why do you think nobody else ran to be leader of the NDP? Well, you know, first of all, I think there were a number of MPPs who did consider running and and took a serious run at it. Um, and I would have welcomed all of them. But I can't, I, I really can't speak for them about why they chose not to run. I, what I can tell you is why I put myself forward for the job. And that's because I think that Ontario really needs a strong NDP um, that can defeat the Conservatives. And and I also built a very strong and, and full campaign that I'm really proud of. A contested leadership race, though, uh, you know, it would have, I, I think, plausibly brought more energy. You might have signed up more members. Do you think that there's a potential downside for the party to uh, having this, maybe not quite an acclamation, but a, a single candidate contest? You know, I, I don't think so. I've talked to people in other parts of the country, too, because, of course, this isn't actually that uncommon. There's been many others who've gone uncontested, uh, folks who many of them went on to become premiers in their provinces. So I'm not, I don't really think so. I mean, I think what's really important right now, and I, I really am hearing this from a lot of people, uh, not just New Democrats, but that there's a sense that we're united. Being united like this behind one candidate, one leader is is really actually pretty interesting and and a great opportunity for us. So I'm looking forward to it. What do you think went wrong in uh, 2018 and 2022 that the party wasn't able to form government? And and what do you want to do differently? Mm -hmm. You know, what I look at, honestly, and it's a major reason why I decided to run, actually, is is not so much, you know, what we lost, etc. It's the number of people who didn't vote. This, to me, was the most concerning result in that election. Why are people not voting? And I really, truly believe it's because people have been told over and over again that this, that to expect less, that this is as good as it gets, that the the expectation of political leaders and government is so low. But turnout did not decline for all parties equally in 2022. And the NDP really did uh, suffer a really substantial fall in your uh, absolute number of votes and your share of the popular vote. The Liberals actually got slightly more votes than the NDP did in 2022. And so I do want to press you on this. I mean, something went wrong. Mm -hmm. I mean, what do you think went wrong in the party's message or its strategy or or what? I mean, I think that we uh, I think probably we were, in my opinion, uh, we were not necessarily uh, inspiring people with the kinds of ideas that we had. We weren't talking about the uh, the, the the platform and the policy that we generated that was ac- exciting and, and I think would have connected with a lot more people. Again, I'll push back with you too. I, <laughs> I, I think if you look at the overall low voter turnout, it's not that every one of those people would have voted for the NDP by any means. But I think we have a bigger job to do, which is continuing to engage people. And I think there's a lot of vote out there that didn't go to anyone. And that is an opportunity for us. But I, I, I also think, and I find it very frustrating, I think that this government ran, ran, well, they lied. They just flat out lied to Ontarians in the last election. And they broke their promises 
uh, within months. And we've got to provide folks with some hope and some alternatives. You know, the party has historically had this this base of support among certainly steel unions in Hamilton, where, you know, Andrea Horvath comes out of, and also a long historic base in northern Ontario. Uh, you are mm-hmm. a, a Davenport MPP. And uh, I'm wondering, do you uh, see your role as trying to uh, grow the party beyond its historic bases? Are you going to try and fight harder for for lack of a better term, sort of squishy, progressive urban uh, voters? First of all, I should say, like, you know, I I come, I'm born and raised in Newfoundland, came to Ontario from a very different place than here. And I've worked and and been involved in this party and across uh, the province for many years. So I I actually think that um, I have a lot of uh, connections in other regions. And I've spent a lot of time uh, listening and working with the union movement. Well, so I think those are very important, right? That history, that connection, that that place of the party as the party of labor is crucial and increasingly important, actually. But I do think we absolutely have to connect in communities and in places where perhaps we we haven't made as many inroads before. And I, I'll tell you, I've spent a lot of time in the last uh, few months all across this province, but I have also focused on areas like Brampton and Mississauga. And I can tell you, there's a hell of a lot of... Uh, uh, voter remorse in, in a lot of those writings right now. You know, people are saying, are, are, are basically not seeing the kind of, frankly, service uh, from the people that they've elected in those communities uh, that they had. Uh, and there's there's a lot of disappointment, again, in many parts of this province where, uh, for example, in the around the Greenbelt, communities along the Greenbelt, where people uh, of all political stripes are up in arms because they know that this government decisions aren't going to actually help any of the people that they claim to be helping. Um, I should also mention that in a lot of those you know, communities, they're going to be looking for an alternative. And I think that's where we have some opportunity as well. If we build and organize uh, across uh, folks who have um, concerns about this government, and that's growing. But you know, can I also just push back on this Toronto thing? Because can I just say, who is more obsessed with Toronto than Doug Ford? Like, <laughs> this is a guy. This is a guy who, you know, it, everything he does seems to be focused on just, you know, it's like he's obsessed with Toronto City Council. I've never seen anything like it. And then goes out there and tries to pretend that he's a man of the people across this province. Give me a break. We need somebody who's actually focused on, you know, not just on. Uh, developing the Greenbelt ostensible or giving, you know, ridiculous powers to the mayor of Toronto, maybe actually, I don't know, think about housing issues in places like Sudbury or London or Hamilton. Let's let's talk about that for a change. The other thing that happened in 2022 was that the the Tories did make some inroads uh, in some traditional NDP uh, seats. Uh, I'm thinking of uh, in Windsor. And of course, uh, you know, Gilles Bisson very well. Uh, the, the, the Tories flipped Timmins. Do you think that is an aberration or does that speak to uh, maybe some more uh, fundamental thinking uh, the NDP need to do about uh, how they win back those seats in the future? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, we we can't take anything for granted, obviously, um, and uh, we will win those seats back. I, I feel very confident in that. Um, I won't call it an aberration. I think that we need to always be very focused on how we're connecting in those places. But um, 
I I feel very strongly in 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 each of those writings, except for Timmins, where you know Jill was also um, a little unwell at the time too. Yes. Uh, but in the other writings, those where you didn't have incumbents running, and so it, you know the Conservatives focused in on that and were successful this time. Uh, but uh, you know I I believe that we can win those back, and I believe and I I know that we can win in many other parts of this province because we're going to have to right if we're going to form government in 2026, which, which just to be 100 percent clear is absolutely my intention. You know I'm not I'm not in this to be in opposition forever, right? And that's why this this work that I'm doing and that I that I will continue to do of getting out across the province of building and organizing on the ground across movements movements is so critical. I want to get into a position where we can actually fix some of the systemic issues that we have in this province. I know we can do better, and that's what I'm in it for, yeah. So before you uh, make it to forming government, which we'll have to wait for the results of the next election, um, (laughs) how do you deal with the fact that, you know, that election is three years away, you're going to spend the intervening time watching this government uh, go the opposite direction from uh, every New Democrat priority. Uh, mm-hmm. It's going to be a really hard time, and it's going to be a hard time to keep your party motivated, I would think. So how do you deal with the next, frankly, tough several years? I think that we do what we've done, which is to be strong opposition to push them back. Um, and and I think, but I think there's no way you can do it just alone in the legislature, right? It has to be about building a movement. And that means talking to as many people as possible, inviting them in, uh, organizing in every writing of this promise. And so that means the work that happens outside of question period, right? Obviously. Um, and so one of my priorities uh, as the new leader in the next few months is, and it will continue to be, is getting out across the province, listening to people, organizing them around what's important to them, uh, uniting progressives across the province. This is going to be critical. And and the first step in that is coming back strong in February when the legislature does resume with a re-energized caucus. And I think that is one of the advantages of of bringing in, you know, of having a new leader. Right. Is that um, this is an opportunity uh, to get people excited, uh, to engage them around a new vision. I know for a fact, because I've been at this long enough, that that three and a half years is going to fly by. It's going to fly by. Uh, and this government is going to do a ton of damage in the meantime. Um, but you can be sure that the NDP uh, in official opposition, we don't sit back and wait for government. We're organizing now. We're pushing back now. We're putting forward bold solutions. We're we're bringing in the bills and the motions to get something done. Uh, you know, the government astonishes me sometimes that they refuse to work with us on anything. I, I just I want to give one example to you because it really bothered me on the last day the legislature was sitting. Um, one of our northern MPPs, Guy Bourguet, brought forward a bill to improve maintenance on highways 11 and 17. Here we are on the verge of the holidays. The snow is coming and the government just all out rejected it. And I thought, wow, what kind of message is that to send to the people of Northern Ontario? You know, when when people are dying on their roads, um, there was an opportunity there to to at least work together with us on a solution and not be blinded by partisanship. And this government continues to refuse to do that. And that's really unfortunate, but we'll, we'll it won't stop us from continuing to put forward those uh, policies and try to move things forward. 
I mean, that's an example of what, what I'm talking about, though, is that, you know, the NDP can put forward ideas. Um, you can make worthwhile suggestions for, you know, policy and, and policy change. But it has to be disheartening, even for somebody like Guy Bourguin, to, to watch an idea that is so important to him just get shot down. Sure. But... But, you know, what people and we and what we have to get out there to to folks in Northern Ontario is to remind them that, you know, their Northern MPPs voted against that bill. You know, Greg Rickford, uh, Vic Fidelli, you know, these guys are voting against legislation like that for purely partisan reasons. So, yes, it's frustrating. Of course, it's frustrating. And every once in a while, you know, they let us, you know, pass some bill that, you know, declares the day of whatever being a day of whatever. And, you know, that's great. It's it's not that we don't aren't grateful for those opportunities sometimes, but come on. Uh, you know, we have um, real work to do. And and I think when you have a government that, you know, again, in the face of a crisis in our healthcare system right now, which is largely a staffing crisis, let's be clear, a staffing crisis, you have a government that's willing to go back and again appeal a court decision that's going to freeze wages of those healthcare workers, which they are driving out of the system, and then make an announcement of like, what, $4 million to, to deal with, you know, create more nursing positions. I mean, this is, this is peanuts. This is like, this is like putting the, you know, the little bandaid in the band. It's not just a slapping a bandaid on it. It's, it's the littlest bandaid in the bandaid box that never covers anything, right? <laughs> you know, that nobody ever uses. And so, you know, in opposition, uh, I never believe that we sit back and don't continue to come up with bold ideas and solutions. We keep doing that work and we we keep our our eye on um, the ball, which is to build and to actually create a government that works for people in this province. Uh, and with that, I will say that we'll be keeping an eye on you in the new year. And uh, Marat Stiles, the incoming new permanent leader of the NDP, thank you so much for joining us on the On Poly podcast. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Maybe it's particularly this year. I feel a heavy weight, the weight of obligation, the weight of opportunity to protect and nurture something that we all hold so precious, and that's our democracy. We see a fragility in democracies around the world, and Canada is no different. That was Lieutenant Governor Elizabeth Dowdswell speaking on the last sitting day at Queen's Park last week. And we are talking about this speech today because it is highly unusual for the King's representative to do that. So, John Michael, fill us in. For context, it is not every day that the lieutenant governor speaks to MPPs. Uh, the the first day of a sitting or, or the session of the legislature, when of course you get the speech from the throne, uh, that is one of the the few exceptions. Uh, in this context, it was the last day of the fall sitting, and the government had invited Dowdswell into the chamber to grant a royal assent to several pieces of legislation that had been voted on in recent weeks. So, of course, royal assent is the last step in a bill becoming law. It's also an opportunity in a case like this. It's a small ceremony, but it's a nice little ceremony. And it's an opportunity for the king's representative, and I'm still getting used to calling it the king's representative. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, it's an opportunity for the king's representative in Ontario to give some general remarks about the last year and wish everyone a happy holidays. Uh, what the vice regal officer is not supposed to do is get anywhere near politics. That is the province, so to speak, of elected politicians. Well, okay, but for the record, she didn't take a partisan position on a partisan 
issue. She spoke up in favor of a form of government that we should all hold dear, namely democracy. That's not considered too political, is it? Well, I don't think so, and you don't think so, and the uh, lieutenant governor's office would say, no, of course not. Dowdswell has been vocal on the topic of democracy and the importance of democracy and and the need for us all as citizens to live democratic values for many years now. And this is not like some new uh, passing passion of hers. But the reason that her remarks raised eyebrows at Queen's Park is because among the bills she had just given royal assent to were Bill 39. This is the second of the so-called strong mayor bills, which gives uh, John Tory in Toronto the ability to win votes at council with only one third of councils voting in favor. And uh, the other bill is Bill 51, which actually makes some changes to the rules of the legislature itself that uh, the opposition have criticized. I'm not going to get into the details of Bill 51, just to say that it, it does amend the, the law that governs Queen's Park itself. So, you know, it could have been a coincidence, but it certainly got our attention. I wouldn't want this speculation on our part to take away from the overall importance of her message, which was about how, you know, all of us, whether we are uh, individual citizens or whether we are uh, elected officials in the Legislative Assembly itself, uh, have a role to play in uh, living democratic values, in, in embodying uh, a democratic spirit with our personal conduct. While we're on this subject, I do want to talk a bit about how MPPs or at least political parties conduct themselves. And something happened last week. I have to admit, it got under my skin a little bit, and I just want to share this. There is a tradition that when a new leader comes in, the other parties, you know, they sheathe their swords for one day. On the day the new leader comes in, you say, congratulations, uh, welcome to the party, and, um, you know, uh, good luck, but not too much luck, ha, 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 something like that. And, and, uh, you know, I wrote a column about this last week in which I shared the fact that in 1984, when John Turner became the leader of the federal liberals, uh, Brian Mulroney, who was the leader of the federal conservatives at the time, wrote a handwritten letter to John Turner the night that he won the leadership in June of 84. And he said, Mila and I have just watched your impressive victory. We want to convey to you, Jill, and the children our warm good wishes for health and happiness in the future. Sincerely, Brian. Now, folks... That's how it's done. That's what you do on day one. You write a nice letter or I guess nowadays you put out a, you know, a statement of some kind and you say, uh, welcome to the battle. And I'm sure there will be tempestuous times ahead. But but, uh, you know, congratulations to you for winning. And uh, and today uh, we're going to be civil to each other. Well, that sort of did and didn't happen this past week. Whoever does social media in Doug Ford's office put out a nice tweet saying, welcome to the debates, and I look forward to all the discussion. Now, Doug Ford doesn't talk that way, so there's no way that um, there's no way the premier put that tweet out. Somebody put it out for him, and that's fine. That's He's got big, bigger things to do than put out tweets. But the Ontario Progressive Conservative Party put out a press release in which it very ungenerously then went on a rampage saying things like, if you want more, no. And if you want, uh, you know, no more tax cuts, and if you want no more cutting of red tape, and if you want no more housing built, then Mara Stiles is your, is your candidate, is your leader. And I just thought to myself, that's pretty classless. That's a pretty ungenerous thing to do on day one. What happened to the Marcus of Queensbury rules, which says on day one, you act like a mensch, and then after that, you can go after her. Well, apparently, they don't even get day one anymore. 
So anyway, I'm off my soapbox now. Well, I will just add uh, one thing, and uh, now I'm stepping up onto the soapbox you just vacated. Um, the, the distinction that caught my eye was that the, the tweet, which is, of course, under the premier's name and you know is, is signed in that sense, was, as we say, it was generous, it was uh, charitable, it was the things that you want that day one statement to be, while the release from the PC party came from their anonymous media account with no spokesperson to attribute it to or anything like that. They specifically specific attack against her was that Styles will just say no to everything that the government is saying yes to. Uh, but, you know, the problem for the Tories right now seems to be that the stuff they're saying yes to isn't actually beloved by the public either. We got some new polling numbers out this week, too. Why don't you take us through those while we're at it? Definitely a mixed bag for uh, the Premier and the PC party. Uh, let's start with uh, a, a poll from Angus Reid, which uh, does these uh, on a regular interval uh, assessments of how popular the various Premiers are around the country. Uh, only a 34% approval rating for Doug Ford, and uh, that puts him among the bottom three Premiers in the province. Uh, only New Brunswick's Blaine Higgs and Manitoba's Heather Stephenson come in lower at 28 and 26% respectively. Uh, not only is that bad in comparison to other premiers around the country, it's a substantial drop from where Ford was even six months ago. Uh, We also have a poll from Main Street that seems to back up the impression that uh, the government's changes to the Greenbelt are profoundly unpopular. Uh, A majority of respondents telling the poll commissioned by iPolitics that they strongly disapprove of the uh, changes to the Greenbelt that the government says will allow them to get more housing built quickly. Uh, Fully two-thirds say they are either strongly or somewhat uh, in disapproval of those changes. Uh, Only about a quarter of respondents say they strongly or somewhat approve. Uh, The government also is getting a failing grade from respondents on health care and labor negotiations, which I I think if you think back to the events of the last several weeks and months is not hugely surprising. Uh, The good news for the Tories, such as it is in that same Main Street poll, is that they still face divided opposition. Uh, The Liberals and the NDP are currently splitting the vote with about 25% apiece, and the PCs are getting about 37%. If that sounds familiar, it's because that's about what polls showed for months before the election uh, earlier this year. We do seem to have reverted back to a bit of a a holding pattern. I'd make one observation about the Greenbelt number. And that is, I suspect that if the government had come out and said, we're going to take some land out of the Greenbelt, but we're doing so in order to assure you that affordable housing is going to be built on that land, I wonder whether the numbers would have been as negative. But they didn't say that. They said, we're taking this land out of the Greenbelt and we are going to just allow housing to be built there. And I think there's a lot of skeptical people out there who wonder, is this really going to be affordable housing? Are these going to be homes I can afford to buy? Or are these going to be more sort of you know, million dollar homes that are just well without, not within the reach at all of, uh, you know, first time home buyers. Yeah. And I think that's where a lot of the skepticism of this government's housing policy in general uh, comes from. I mean, I I can make you the argument for why increasing uh, general availability of homes, uh, you know, should in general uh, uh, improve access to housing. And the government talks about attainable housing, not as much as they talk about affordable housing. But people are skeptical and, and you can't just wish away the argument. You actually need to make and then win the argument. And the government clearly hasn't done that. And I make that comment uh, with full disclosure here that my brother is a home builder who actually purchased a piece of land that uh, was in the green belt. And then, uh, I mean, many years ago, I gather, and then the land is now not in the green belt because it was part of that part of those many parcels that got taken out. 
Uh, so uh, housing will be built on that land right now. What he plans to build, I have no idea, but uh, I just put that on the record in the interest of full disclosure. So you've lived in Sudbury a long time. How do you think the city has changed? Oh, my God, it's changed uh, drastically, especially visually. When I was growing up in the 50s and 60s as a kid, the landscape around Sudbury was was barren and desert-like or like a, like a moonscape. Trees were very stunted, what trees there were it was. There was no undergrowth. It was just rock and sand everywhere. Uh, during the summer, when it was hot, the air over the city was always blue from the smoke coming from the two smelters in our region. And the blue sulfury smelling air was just normal. And since the early 70s till now, uh, it's, the city has come back. It's green everywhere. It doesn't look like it used to at all, at all, at all. It's uh, become a beautiful city and trees everywhere, greenery everywhere. It's not the same. That was Fleming Jensen, a Sudbury resident who TVO's affordability reporter Kat Eschner spoke with on the third stop of her Recession Road series. Kat joins us now again with more on how the economic downturn is affecting Ontarians across the province. Hi again. Welcome back. Hello. So, Kat, who is Fleming and why was he an important voice in your story? So Fleming and his his life partner, Jean McKechnie, they welcomed me into their home, and Jean took me around a, a local neighborhood and introduced me to a lot of people. They, they're both longtime Sudbury residents, and Fleming particularly kind of epitomized a particular kind of Sudbury resident because he is from the mining industry, and the mining industry is is a huge component of why Sudbury is where it is and the fact that the city is is what it is today. Um, so he retired from the mining industry. He worked all his life. And now he's in a place where he can really kind of enjoy retirement. He actually only fully retired in 2020. Um, he'd sort of done the, I retired, but I'm also going to go back and do some contract. You know what I mean? Like the, the play it out uh, retirement. Um, and because he's lived in Sudbury for nearly all of his life, he's witnessed the sort of arc of change in the city as a mining town that is, you know, now more differentiated, although mining remains really important economic driver. Now, you mentioned last week when you are here that you were going to take us to a particular street in Sudbury because of the story that street could tell. So let's do that here. What's the street and what's the story? So... Kathleen Street is a sort of longish street in a neighborhood called the Donovan in Sudbury, uh, somewhat outside of downtown. Much of it is residential, but down near the bottom, there are some businesses, including some that you might not expect given the rest of the street. And I went there with this sort of question in mind, um, you know, is this the beginning of gentrification on Kathleen Street? Some of it is pretty, like, it's pretty depreciated. So there's there's some some businesses. It's not a hugely populous area in the sense that, like, there's not a lot of uh, street life. There's not a lot going on. Um, and down near the bottom, there, there are a series of sort of closed and shuttered businesses, which... Um, so some of them looked like they were just like, you know, awaiting a new rental and some of them looked like they've been shuttered for a long time and, you know, who knows what they're awaiting, maybe redevelop, like who knows, right? Um, and then there's this kind of stretch right near the train tracks at the bottom of the street where there's these, this sort of cluster of really well-maintained, beautiful, shiny businesses that don't look like the rest of the street. And these, most of them are owned by one man who I went to meet as part of this, this proceed, proceeding around the street. Um, 
And I was sort of like, is gentrification coming for Kathleen Street? And then because I knew this woman, Jean, who Jean McKechnie, who showed me around, I was able to also meet some people who lived on the street who maybe don't have as much access to some of those businesses. So you mentioned the uh, businessman who who owns these buildings. Uh, How did Kathleen Street get to where it is today? And is he part of that story? For sure. Yeah. No, he definitely is. So I'm going to take you a little farther back first, um, back to back to Steve's childhood. Um, so after the war. That far back? After yeah. the war. Yeah, right, fun. right. There were lots of Eastern European immigrant communities that moved into the neighborhood in the Donovan and built their own spaces. So you can see there's, you know, there's a Ukrainian and Croatian sort of cultural centers on this street, Kathleen Street. Lots of miners lived around there, and then over time, as some of them aged out, there were lots of retired miners living on that street, both in sort of congregate settings that you might, you know, like rooming house type settings, and then also owning homes and living in the homes in that neighborhood. And just over time, the neighborhood became pretty depreciated in general. In, you know, the 2000s, uh, when Mark Browning, who was born and raised in Sudbury, um, but left to Toronto and then Vancouver. After Vancouver, he came back to Sudbury and he wanted to sort of stay there. He opened a record store, which was the first of his businesses on Kathleen Street in 2008. And over time, kind of bought the buildings around it and turned a number of them into businesses. The other ones are pretty much all food businesses, although now he also has a a guitar shop that's related to the record store. And his mom, Jan Browning, uh, ran a Sudbury boutique for 56 years. She very recently retired, and she put up uh, a lot of the capital. And her corporation actually owns a couple of the buildings. So Mark was saying to me that her access to credit, like her, her ability to leverage what she has into credit was a big part of why he was able to sort of open all these businesses. And now he owns four businesses in three buildings and then two also, also two rental properties that are all kind of in this cluster at the bottom of Kathleen Street. Okay. You talked to lots of folks up there, I'm sure, about what uh, what they think about the changes that are happening on Kathleen Street. Is there a consensus? No. <laughs> in a word, no. So I think that like in terms of Fleming and Jean, Jean who showed me around, I think she wanted me to see the neighborhood. Like it just, she she walks through that neighborhood with a neighbor of hers every day, pretty much with with their dogs. And she just knows a lot of people who live along that street and who work along that street. And I think she just thought it was important, but I don't think she had for herself a clear opinion of what was going on. She was more just like, it matters that like, I'm going to introduce you to this this man named Stefan, who I've known for a long time, who's on ODSP, who lives in the back of uh, a building sort of like, a block and a half away from these other businesses. Like she was, she just wanted me to meet these people. And I think that like for her, that was what was important. And that ambivalence she felt was more just being like, I can see that there's this poverty and I can also see this other stuff, but I don't think she would necessarily super strongly connect the two. I heard a lot of sort of ambivalence and suspicion about something that like I've had locals term gentrification, but wasn't um, about, for example, Browning's businesses and the other businesses in the area. It was about developers and sort of larger property owners coming in and buying houses and renting them out or buying land and and, and turning it into rentals. So, like, I don't think it's a straightforward story. I spent the day walking up and down Kathleen Street meeting people, and I I saw a lot of different stuff in the neighborhood. I met one street sex worker who didn't really want to talk to me. I met some people who who were kind of marginally housed, but were housed in that area. And then I met um, some people who were like really enjoying accessing these local businesses, many of whom drove from other parts of Sudbury specifically to go to them. So it's this complicated thing where I can sort of see these two different worlds um, kind of right up against one another. 
And for me, as someone who grew up in Vancouver, a city which has long had these kind of stark divides be very visible, especially in the neighborhood known as the downtown east side, um, it was like kind of a familiar dynamic where I was like, oh, I know what that is. I know what that is. I have seen these things living cheek by jowl before. And I mean, even in my own neighborhood in Toronto, I see that. But for some reason, and maybe it's just because I'm farther away from it now, I was thinking of Vancouver. I mean, it certainly sounds like you're describing gentrification in these sort of walks like a duck, talks like a duck, looks like a duck kind of uh, a definition. Um, how is the story of gentrification in Sudbury uh, and Kathleen Street different than you would see in uh, Parkdale here in Toronto? One big takeaway is that um, part of the story of gentrification in Parkdale is that it's pushing out blue collar and working class folks, whereas in Sudbury, blue collar job, like there are a lot of really good blue collar jobs still in Sudbury. And it is like, it's a mining town. Blue collar jobs are the norm. I had uh, like a number of people ask me in that town, ta- like ask me, oh, did you go to university? Um, whereas I feel like in Toronto in 20, you know, what year are we in? In 2022. Um, I'm still in like 2018, I think. Um, <laughs> I, in 2022, I don't know that I, I would like the way I was asked that question was just not something I associate with living and working in Toronto. Yeah. Um, here, here you'd ask. So what university or college are you going to? Sure. Yeah. In the north, you might say, are you going to university or college? Yeah. And it's different. I- that was part of it. But another part of it, um, and this is me kind of being nerdy for a second. Um, I think I have the, the correct audience for that here. Mm-hmm. Um, right at home. <laughs> gentrification, like there's this perception among the people I talk to, including Mark Browning and um, including some of the other people I spoke with, that gentrification is kind of about people coming from like elsewhere and imposing capital from elsewhere on a place to change it. But I think... And Marx lived and worked in, in this neighborhood for about 15 years. I think it's possible to sort of think about the ways that gentrification isn't about inside or outside. That's a false divide. What gentrification about is about is sort of money and access to resources. So it's about, in other words, about capital and who has it and who doesn't. And what I'm thinking about as I work on this written story, because I am actually writing a feature about Kathleen Street, is the sort of divide between some of the people who I met who, you know, can't afford to frequent these businesses and for whom Kathleen Street is home, but it's also like for a couple of the people I met, somewhere they would like to move away from because it's dangerous for them, it's rough for them, and because they don't have access to the kind of protections that some other people have, they're like worried about going too far from their house, their apartment in case something gets broken into, right? So it's a completely different world for them than walk a couple blocks and suddenly you're in these nice businesses where people visit from all over the city to go to them. It's pretty easy when you look at it that way to see who has the access to capital, who has the access to money and the access to resources and who doesn't. So in that sense, if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it's probably a duck. We are talking about gentrification. I just... I thought one of the things that was interesting is the ways that different people thought, like what different people thought gentrification was as I sort of worked on this story. And also the ways in which like people didn't talk about it because it just, if you're, you know, budgeting your ODSP check and thinking, okay, I'll go to the food bank in this week because that's when the food bank has the good stuff. And then if I get my ODSP check in this week, then I can buy my groceries so I know what I need when I go to the food bank. When I have, If you're thinking this, like if you're thinking about this stuff, like one man, Stéphane Bruyer, who I spoke with, he was telling me about this stuff. I don't think he thinks about gentrification in, in those terms because he doesn't have time. You know what I mean? He's, his list of concerns is completely different. And this all kind of left me with this question that is like a really, 
this is the nerdy urbanist question, you know, who is a neighborhood for? Like, is it for Mark? And is it for the other people who own businesses? Is it for Stefan and for the other people who live on the street? Is it for both? And how do they how do they match up? Right. Like, how do those different needs match up in a way that is productive and sort of one of the central questions of I I feel like cities in the 21st century in Canada is, is that possible? Can we have both and should we have both? Or should neighborhoods be for the people who live there? Sudbury in general is a bit different than other places in Ontario, but it's certainly not a story that is unique to uh, Sudbury or to Kathleen Street. Those are really good questions and uh, worth pursuing. Are, are you done now for Recession Road? Or are you going back on the road or what's happening? I'm headed back on the road in the spring. Uh, I don't we're still we're still ironing out the details, so I don't want to I don't want to get the cart ahead of the horse. But um, yeah, I'm excited to be doing continuing this series in 2023. Great. Well, we've enjoyed your visits here on our little podcast, so thanks very much for doing it. Thank you so much, Steve. And that is the On Poly podcast for this Tuesday, December 13th, 2022. Before we sign off, a quick update on a segment from a few weeks ago. JMM, tell the good people if you would. Regular listeners may remember we spoke with Liberal MPP Ted Shu about his private member's bill on uh, empowering municipalities to create their own guidelines around natural gas distribution. Uh, last week, Bill 29 did uh, come for a vote in the House, uh, the second reading vote. Uh, all Liberal and NDP MPPs present voted for it, while the PCs voted against it, which, uh, if you know the uh, makeup of the House, means that the bill failed uh, 30 yeas to 76 nays. Which, frankly, is the fate of most private members' bills, which is why everybody wants to be in government. Hello. Anyway, this was our last episode for 2022, but we will be back in your feeds in the new year. Another reminder that if you are an aspiring documentarian, TVO Today is calling on all nonfiction storytellers to submit a short documentary under five minutes. Check out shortdoc.tvo.org for more details. And don't forget to check out our newsletters. You can subscribe to them at tvo.org slash newsletters. This week, JMM and I riff on the differences between the NDP and liberal leadership races. Spoiler alert, the NDP's wasn't much of a race, and we'll need to wait till spring to see whether the Liberals have anything much better on offer. Any feedback you have, we are happy to hear it, good, bad, or indifferent. Write us an email at onpolitics at tvo.org. This week's episode was produced and edited by Tiffany Lamb. Our managing editor is Shahir Tajvidi. Production support from Carla Lucetta and Jonathan Hallowell. If you get a break between now and 2023, we hope it's a good one. Happy holidays, Steve. To you too, JMM. See you in the new year.